Welcome to Jesus on Every Page, a podcast to help you discover and enjoy Christ in the Old Testament. I can't promise you a weekly episode, but it will be every one to two weeks, I hope. Who's this podcast for? Well, it's really for everyone who wants to know more of Jesus through the Old Testament. Like the book, it will be pitched at a kind of popular level. I hope every Christian will be able to benefit from. Each podcast, I'm going to answer your questions about the Old Testament. I'm going to try and point you to great books and blogs. I'm going to highlight the best Old Testament sermons and lectures, and also walk you through an Old Testament passage to demonstrate how to find and enjoy Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I'd love to get your feedback on the podcast. I want to talk about what you want me to talk about. So send in your comments, your questions. You can email me at jesusoneverypage at gmail.com. That's jesusoneverypage, one word, at gmail.com. Or you can tweet me a question at David P. Murray. Leave me a comment on the blog or leave me a voice message on the podcast homepage. First off, here's my quote of the week. It's Arthur Pink speaking of the Old Testament appearances of the Son of God as the Angel of the Lord. Pink says, The Son of God graciously adopted such methods, that is, appearing as the Angel or Messenger of the Lord, he graciously adopted such methods to indicate how much he longed for the fullness of time when he should put away their sins and bring in an everlasting righteousness for them. What I love about that quote is how it how it communicates the enthusiasm, the eagerness of the Son of God to come to this earth and, and to be with sinners and to bring messages of grace to sinners. It's it's a kind of holy impatience, if you like. For my book of the week, I've chosen Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament by Christopher Wright. This is probably my favourite book on Christ in the Old Testament. The book tells us how Jesus' story is rooted in the story of Israel. How Jesus lived by the script of Israel. And he argues in the book that it's only as we come to understand Jesus as a man with a story, an Old Testament story, that we will come to know who Jesus truly is. The blurb on the back says that the book traces out the face of Christ in the textual tapestry of the Old Testament. But it also outlines the pattern of God's design for Israel as it's lived out in the story of Jesus. Now, I've read and reread this book many times, and I'm, I learn from it every time I read through it. I've assigned it to every student of the Old Testament that I've ever taught. It's easily in my top five of game-changing books, the most influential books in my own life. Let me recommend a lecture of the week, pointing you to Dr. Richard Gaffin's lecture, Christ in the Old Testament. In Luke 24. You can find that on iTunes if you simply search for Richard Gaffin, Christ in the Old Testament in Luke 24. 
I'll also put links to these resources under the podcast on my blog. But what I really loved about Gaffin's treatment of Luke 24, especially verse 27, where it says that Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What I loved about Gaffin's treatment about that, of that verse is the maximalist interpretation he argues for, rather than a minimalist interpretation. In other words, it wasn't just from one or two places scattered throughout the Old Testament that he showed himself to the disciples, but throughout. It's a powerful argument. And again, just transforms the way you view the Old Testament. As for my blog of the week, you'll find that at MatthiasMedia.com. MatthiasMedia.com. If you enter in Exodus 19, you'll come up with a great little article by Sam Frenny. You might call it Grace Isn't a New Testament Concept. There we find Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, having been delivered from the Egyptians, brought through the Red Sea and on through the desert for a few months. And Frenny says, so at the point where Israel are assembled and Moses meets with God on their behalf, God has already saved them. He's ended their slavery and set them free. And it's on this basis God enters into a covenant with the people. The thing to realize here, says Freni, is that this entire exchange happens before the law is given. The Ten Commandments are in the following chapter and the remainder of the laws Israel is to follow come after that. The cliche of the Old Testament being about work and the New Testament about grace doesn't hold up. God saved Israel and entered into a special relationship with them. And only then could they obey the law. Israel didn't have a special relationship with God because of who they were or what they did. This, says Freni, is grace, not works. Now I like to put it like this. Next is 19, we have divine deeds, where God says, you have seen what I did. We have a a divine defeat, He defeats the Egyptians. We have a divine deliverance. I bore you on eagle's wings. And we have a divine destiny. I brought you to myself. And it's only then that God says, therefore, do this. Or to put it another way, redemption and relationship comes before rules. Question of the week. I got this question from a blog reader. It said, I'm considering preaching a sermon series through the Psalms. What commentaries would you recommend? Well, there are a couple of general introductions to the Psalms that I think are very helpful. Hassel Bullock's Encountering the Book of Psalms, Jeffrey Grogan's Prayer, Praise and Prophecy, and you'll come across many imprecatory Psalms, Psalms with curses in them, and You'll find great help in understanding these psalms from War Psalms of the Prince of Peace by James Adams. In terms of older commentaries on the psalms, I I always consult Spurgeon's Treasury of David. It's always so suggestive and helpful for preaching. 
John Gill on the Psalms, both of these you should be able to find online. William Plummer on the Psalms, a, a really big book, but it's got so much helpful material in it, both in terms of the original language and spiritual application. And I also like Andrew Boner's Christ and his church in the book of Psalms. In terms of not-so-old commentaries, I, I enjoy Hengstenberg on the Psalms, a bit more technical. And of course, H.C. Leopold, his exposition of the Psalms. Most of his commentaries on the Old Testament are well worth consulting. And then coming from old, not-so-old, now to modern commentaries, you do well to read Derek Kidner, Alan Harmon, William Van Gemeren, that's in the Expositor's Bible Commentary Series. Uh, Gerald Wilson in the NIV Application Commentary. And there are many others, but that would give you a wonderful start. Let me now turn, though, to uh, walking you through a passage of the Old Testament and finding Jesus in it. And I'm going to do this in response to an email from Steve, who's a reader of Jesus on every page. He asked, um, he's talking about a podcast that I did with Tim Chalice, and he says, I heard you mention how the ark is not a valid type, just because both it and the cross were wood. But rather, that's just a coincidence in this case. And he says, I got that part, but my question is, is the ark still a type? pointing to Christ, but in a different way. Whereas all who are in it, just as all who are in Christ, were and are protected by the wrath of God. And Steve says he'd read Pink and heard even MacArthur preach it this way, and he's saying, I'm having a hard time seeing the boundaries here. Well, it's a great question. And Steve's right. Just because the ark is wooden and the cross is wooden, that doesn't make the ark a type of the cross. The fact that the ark is wooden is really an incidental detail that coincidentally or providentially also happens to be the material that the cross was made of. However, that's not what God intended the ark to teach. Critics of typology are right to disdain such incidental and coincidental resemblances as evidence of typology. However, they're wrong to use such tenuous connections to trash any possibility of the ark being a type of Christ. I believe that the ark is a type, a prophetic picture of Christ's person and work, but the resemblances are at a much more fundamental level than the material that both the ark and the cross were made of. But let me take a step back to begin with. Typology starts with a couple of foundational biblical presuppositions. Number one, the Old Testament is a revelation of God. Everything in it tells us what God is like and what God does. It's not just a history of Israel. It's not just an ancient record of an ancient people. It's a revelation of God. It tells us who God is and what God does. Second, foundational, biblical presupposition is this. God's Genesis 3.15 promise to save sinners through a future deliverer created a forward-looking or a futuristic momentum to all 
subsequent revelation. It taught the original readers of the Old Testament to be looking forward for someone to come. Now, if we put these together, we can say that God revealed himself and his future salvation to Old Testament believers through Old Testament characters, events, objects, etc. And that's why I define typology as a real person, place, object or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. Now, with these two foundational presuppositions and that definition in place, let's now work through the questions that I supply in Jesus on every page in trying to work through typology in the Old Testament. Number one question is, is the type real? Unlike an allegory, which may be fictional, a type is always a real someone or something. In this case, we're looking at the ark in the flood, a real historical object and event. Second question is, is the type explicit or implied? Does the Bible anywhere explicitly identify the ark as a type? Now, I argue in the book there are more types in the Bible than those explicitly identified as such, but obviously if it's explicitly identified, that's a, that's a huge advantage. Well, there are a couple of areas in the Bible which uh, refer to the ark. In Matthew 24, 38, Jesus says, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And here, Jesus looks back on the days of Noah and uses the widespread complacency of Noah's generation to warn his and future generations of the need to watch and be ready before God's wrath overwhelmed them. Now, Jesus is definitely drawing an analogy there. He's saying, as it happened in the past, so it's happening today and so it will in the future. But is it typology? There can be analogy or similarity without it being typology. Does this match our definition? A real person, place, object or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. While an analogy can highlight similarity upon reflection, looking back with hindsight, typology involves similarity which the original readers could see with foresight. They could see prospectively. So we have the question then, did the Old Testament believers see the flood and the ark as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. Well, I don't think this passage is convincing here. There's analogy, but there's not typology. We can see it with hindsight, but difficult to argue they could see it with foresight. However, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, 20-22, The divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism, 
not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, although these are some of the most difficult verses to understand in the whole of the New Testament, we can say that Peter clearly identified the ark in the flood as a type of the salvation that Christ provides, with the antitype being what baptism signifies. So, the type is real, and we can say the type is explicitly identified in the New Testament. Third question. What was the type intended to teach the original audience? Well, here we have to try really hard not to fast forward to the fulfillment, the antitype, and then read similarities back onto the type. We have to try to view the type through the eyes of Old Testament believers who didn't have the benefit of New Testament fulfillment. If we try and do that, I think we can say that Noah and the Old Testament believers who read this story would have learned these truths. Number one, God is holy, hates sin, and is determined to punish it with the full force of his justice. Second, God provides sinners with a divinely approved means of escape. Third, God patiently calls sinners to safety in his merciful provision. Fourth, God fully protects and completely saves those who put their faith in him and use his refuge. And fifth, God's wrath purges the world of sin and unrepentant sinners, but will not touch believers who are in his appointed place of refuge. These five truths. The fourth question is, what light did later Old Testament revelation cast upon the type? Well, there are a number of Psalms that refer back to the flood narrative and use it to praise God for that demonstration both of his power and his grace. Fifth question is, what were the inadequacies of the type? A type is always inadequate compared to the antitype. Well, the ark only saved a few sinners for a, from a few days or weeks of God's anger but didn't save large numbers and didn't save from eternal wrath. Sixth question, how did an Old Testament believer use or relate to the type by faith? Well, the Old Testament believers would have learned that God was willing to provide a place of safety and refuge for undeserving sinners who put their trust in him. Genesis 3.15 told them who would save the seed of the woman, Noah's ark told them a bit more of the how. God's wrath poured out upon the very thing or the very one that God provided to save them. Question 7. What are the essential resemblances? And this is the heart of typology. The essential resemblances, not the incidental or external resemblances such as the wood. Here I would say there are five. Just as the flood revealed God is holy, hates sin, and is determined to punish it with the full force of his justice, so the first and second coming of Christ does the same. 
Number two, just as God provides sinners with a divinely approved means of escape, so in Christ God provides sinners with a divinely approved means of escape. Third, just as God patiently calls sinners to safety in his merciful provision, so he calls us to believe in him and trust in his refuge of mercy, Jesus Christ. Four, just as God protected and saved those who put their faith in him, who used his refuge, so God protects and saves all who put their trust in Jesus Christ as a refuge from his anger. And five, just as the flood purged the earth of sin and unrepentant sinners and saved refuge takers for a new and better beginning, so baptism signifies, but does not secure, so baptism signifies God's gracious work of cleansing the soul from corruption and starting again with a new beginning. And the eighth question, does the type present the truth, the same truth, in a simpler way? For a type to be a type, for it to be effective, it has to present the same truth we find in the New Testament, but in a simpler way. And yes, it does. The ark and the flood of water is much easier to understand than God becoming flesh and saving through the substitution of a blood atonement. That's, it's much simpler to understand Noah's ark. So indeed, we're moving from the simple to the complex. Ninth question. Does the fulfillment present the same truth enlarged or filled fuller and heightened has a more heavenly dimension? A type needs to be like that and it's unquestionably so in this case. Jesus is so much better than the ark. God's salvation is from much more than rain and to much more than a cleansed world. It's from sin, and it's saved to the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwell righteousness. So the truths of the type are enlarged and heightened. Question 10. What extra light does the New Testament shed on the Old Testament type? Well, with the benefit of Christ's coming, we can see more truth in the type and see it clearer too. We can look back at the type and, and see much more truth in it than the Old Testament believers did. We understand what was happening there now much more than probably even Noah did. Question 11. What light does the Old Testament type cast upon the New Testament? It's not only the case that the New Testament can give us light on the Old Testament, but the Old Testament can give us light on the New. And I would say here, the very concrete, or should I say very wooden nature of the ark and 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 the, the rain and, and the physicality of it all, they all give a much deeper sense of what it means to be safe in Christ from the wrath of God and, and to appreciate the wrath he saves us from. I think, you know, what, what we experience as Christians today is we have a spiritual faith and in a spiritual refuge and we find a spiritual confidence in that insofar as the Holy Spirit helps us to. But you imagine how, how much more physical, how much more real, um, how much more tangible and audible was that 
Old Testament salvation through the ark. And we can try and put ourselves in the ark and feel the, the physicality and the reality of, of that salvation. That can, that can really help us understand so much the more how secure and safe we are in our salvation. The last question is, does the type have more than one fulfillment? Well, these truths that we've talked about, these five truths, uh, commenced fulfillment at the first coming of Christ. They continue being fulfilled as sinners are saved throughout church history and will achieve consummate fulfillment at the end of the world. The three C's, as I call them, commencement, continuation, and consummation. Now you can take these 12 questions and use them for many Old Testament narratives, and I, I believe they'll help keep you within safe boundaries and borders when dealing with typology. So that wraps up Jesus on Every Page podcast for this week. Please leave some feedback on the blog, leave a question, or, or leave some comments, leave some additional information that I missed out. Give us tips, and I'll try and use what you leave in the following podcasts. In the meantime, God bless, and I'll see you in a week or two. Music.